In a time where we as women are poised to go further than we ever have before, the Victorization Podcast cuts through the noise and takes us straight to the heart of what it truly means to advocate for ourselves and develop a mindset of taking up space and gives us the bow, the arrow, and the aim to find comfort in driving forward as our very best selves, as leaders in our personal and professional lives. Through intimate interviews with power players, entrepreneurs, visionaries, corporate hippies, and many more from all walks of life, we will redefine and shift the narrative from victim to victor to awaken the warrior spirit in all of us. I'm your host, Karen Bartuch. I'm a former Chicago police officer for almost 10 years who transitioned to the private sector and worked my way up to the C-suite of multi-million dollar businesses. As a result of witnessing the difficulty it is for women to advance in the workplace, I decided to build Davida Jane and dedicate my career to creating opportunities for women who want to be seen and heard as leaders. It's time for a victory lap. Thank you so much for being here. Today I have Nancy Hensley, Chief Digital Officer from IBM, and I'm very excited to talk to you today. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I just love your career and journey and all the work that you do to support women. So why don't we just start there and tell me a little bit about your career journey. I, I love to hear like from college on what happened, because <laughs> <laughs> I, I, mine's been a zigzag, so, so I like to hear mine. everybody else's story. Yeah, I think my story is one of those that didn't end up where I thought I was going to be. No, no. And it wasn't bad at all. <laughs> so <laughs> I kind of let the road take me. But I went through college with the intention of being uh, a, more of a clinical psychologist focused on research. That's why we get along so well. <laughs> <laughs> my dream was to actually study people who did like really bad things like oh, sociopaths. Okay. Like I was fascinated by Ted Bundy and why their brains worked it differently. Yeah. So I wanted to work in the prison system. How I ended up here. All right. Yeah, that's <laughs> so different. Yeah. I actually um, was working in a crisis center in the back when we had a, a support hotline for, for suicides. We had to actually trace the calls, which back then the technology wasn't great. So you had to keep somebody on the phone and then somebody else would partner with you to help trace the call from police department to police department. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. And it was so intense, right? Because people's lives are yeah. hanging in the in the balance, which was a pretty heavy thing for somebody in college, let me tell you. And I, it was, it was really intense. It was really tough. The things I was exposed to was just amazing to me coming from a kid from the suburbs. Yeah. But, um, while I was doing this and, and making almost no money, <laughs> no, they never, it's never balanced the right way. Yeah, exactly. One of my friends started a consulting company and he's like, Oh, you know, while you're making, while you're living at poverty level, just come and work with us on the side while yeah. you're building your career. And, you know, that was just, it was a really fun experience. It was a little startup on in the consulting side. And I think that just kind of ended up sucking me into technology away from the, <laughs> the path that I was on. Yeah. And so <laughs> do you miss that work at all? I do. I think I still am, you know, very, I still watch Purpose lots of driven documentaries and, yeah. and, you know, I'm, st and I, I'm pretty sure I still use my degree in the work that I do every day. Yeah. Because yeah. <laughs> since I focus a lot about customer experience, I think that degree comes in handy. Um, but I, I think I loved, I fell in love with tech. And yeah. so that, you know, one thing leads to another, I worked in a couple of consulting roles, uh, landed in a consulting role, McDonald's bought me essentially, and, um, did a lot of fun projects at McDonald's, ended up working for McDonald's. And it was really there that I fell in love with the whole data and analytics thing. Interesting. So wait, so come, you worked at a consulting company and then mm -hmm. McDonald's bought that company. Okay. No, McDonald's bought us. McDonald's bought me as a, as a consultant. So oh, I was there full time. 
really didn't go anywhere else. So every day I would go to McDonald's for years. Yeah. They're finally like, why don't you just come work for us? Oh, okay. <laughs> so, okay, nice. Yeah. <laughs> um, I did a lot of really fun projects, but I I remember um, one of the projects that I really loved and it's when I became an employee was that the way McDonald's made money back then was in real estate. Like they owned oh, all the yeah, real estate yeah, yeah. underneath the stores. And so choosing the right real estate was really important. And that process took forever. So we set out to automate that process and have the real estate agents go out and scout these locations. And they'd come back and they'd give us all of the data, the locations they were interested in. And we would take the model that was done manually that would take, you know, hours and hours, sometimes a week and automate that and then spit out a report for what that piece of property would yield us for a McDonald's site. Interesting. Okay. And, and how that long allowed ago us to be was, much more competitive. Was that? Because I feel like you were doing data before data was we cool. Were way of, <laughs> we were way ahead of our time. Yeah. We had a spatial data warehouse. We were doing that kind of analysis in the late 90s. So we okay. were way ahead. And it, it was really important to have that competitive edge because Walgreens was, ended up being a huge competitor then. Interesting. Not because they were, they you know, not from a burgers perspective, yeah. but because they were starting to put those Buy standalone stores and they were buying the same pieces of the property that McDonald's was buying. And so, um, we, you know, we brought in the spatial warehouse, we built that out and then we're like, Oh, what else can we use this data for? So we started bringing in a crime layer so we could look at where we can make the stores safer. Like, Oh, okay. that's cool. What yeah. else can we use it for? Right. And it was like, yeah. wow, it's amazing how you can use data to transform a business. And so I just fell head over heels in love with that whole space and, and understanding how much that kind of data and insight can transform a business. And that's when I made the decision, I want to go work for a tech company. And I went to work for IBM in, um, and I actually came in on the sales side because I really didn't know what I was doing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it was probably not too long into that job where I was like, oh, I have lots of ideas on how I do things differently. And I was in a car with our general manager and I pitched this idea of, not really productizing the work we do, but patternizing the work we do so we okay. can get some consistent quality around how we delivered analytic solutions. And she's like, okay, build a team, go do it. Okay. <laughs> I mean, and is that the culture at IBM that if you have good ideas and a plan that they'll let you kind of go build something? So I think people would think that that's not very IBM, but I've had a couple of jobs, including yeah. the job I have now, that didn't exist as a normal job. So it, it really is there. I, I think there is a good innovative culture there that people just don't realize because it's, you know, it's, we've been around for over a hundred years. Yeah. And I love, so I worked at Motorola and they were like that. And mm -hmm. I like, I like that because if I did good at one job, they'd give me another job that I probably had no business having <laughs> because I was good at, you know, right. or I had a plan or I had an idea. And right. there's something to be said about that within a culture, especially if you're an innovative entrepreneurial person, Absolutely. that that's part of the organization. So that's very cool. Absolutely. So, so yeah, and that's actually how I got here. I mean, I was, I've kind of bounced between product and, and marketing and, and technical jobs. I really, the, the reason why I like a growth and digital type of job is because it kind of brings all that stuff together I am a product person at heart. I love product. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I also care deeply about the customer experience and what that's like and how much that drives the growth of the product. It's pretty astronomical. And so having the chief digital officer role inside of a product organization helped me actually drive that data-driven culture around customer experience inside of IBM. Awesome. And so when I was at Motorola, we actually modeled IBM's transition <laughs> from a product and hardware mm -hmm. company to the services company. And they said it took seven years to get there. Yep. And so you, it's, you live through that 
Right. Where IBM right. kind of transformed their whole business model. We really did. And we've, we've transformed over the years from just, you know, a hardware company to an analytics company to really now a, a company that's very focused on leveraging, a lot helping our customers leverage AI. And then even taking it to the next level, making that technology more accessible and consumable to everyone. Yeah. So. And data is so, I feel like not every... Not a lot of people are doing it well. Everyone's talking right. about it, right. but IBM has been on the forefront. So can you talk a little bit about the clients you serve to the extent that you can? I know you can't name <laughs> names, but you know, what types of product are you delivering in the data space? Because it's just such a big topic right now. It is. Well, um, a lot of the work we do is around creating uh, virtual assistants okay. and um, natural language recognition and really putting AI to use in a way that is... Um, helps a company optimize their business. So anything from using our Watson Assistant, which is a, a virtual chatbot, to actually being able to manage conversations and, and what those what's in those conversations using natural language uh, understanding. I mean, it, it's, it's really kind of cool what companies are doing with mm -hmm. AI. Yeah. You know, you look at, um, there was a recent FCC um, ruling passed around making sure that these conversations that happen when people are gaming are accessible. And so now all of those conversations that are taking place when players are gaming, chatting with each other, oh, chatting okay. has to be accessible to people who can't hear. Um, so okay. you have to use AI to actually transform those, those uh, conversations. And then there's lots of the places you can go with there. You can manage player toxicity. You can, um, you can basically have a much deeper understanding of the players in your game, the things that they're talking about that can actually help you drive new experiences okay. as a part of that game. Um, so it is amazing the things that people are doing with it to, yeah. to operationalize it. And are you finding your clients are data ready or that you've got to come in there and even help them get to the point where they have data? <laughs> Hardly anyone's data ready. Uh, yeah, yeah. And I don't, that's not even the right term, but you know, you've got to help right. them with their data strategy to like taking a step even before even talking about implementing any data services. Right. Yeah. We have a, a saying that we use that there's no AI without IA, without information architecture. Ah, okay. Um, I like that. Because those <laughs> foundations have to be there. The data has to be there, accessible, ready to go. That's probably the biggest struggle. I mean, you go back to the days of business intelligence or even basic yeah. reporting analytics, everybody struggles with the same thing. They're moving data around on spreadsheets still. Um, so that data is not truly accessible for AI. It's got, it, you have to build a pipeline that allows you to automate some AI capability on top of that. What we really focus on is how do we help clients build that pipeline? How do we help them get the foundations? How do we help them get things into production? So we've got some auto AI capability and then how do we manage that? So you can manage, um, any, any, um, bias that you have within those models, that's really, really key. Okay. Um, interesting. We've been looking at bias for a long time. That's uh, a whole other research project, which just fascinates me. <laughs> yeah. We'll say more about that. What, what do you like about it? Well, I think what I liked about it is one of the first people I met from IBM Research that was working on it was a woman who was looking into all the bias because so many models have been built by men. Oh, interesting. And, you know, we don't mean to introduce bias into our models, but based on who you are, so you know, where you are geographically, socially, all of those things will introduce bias yeah. that you just don't see until the model's running for a while and you, you actually see the results of it. I just read an article, I think it was in Forbes, that was talking about how female academics tend to call their research supportive and mm. builds upon where males say this is novel 
and unique and innovative. <laughs> and then their research ends up quoted more right. and cited more because of the words they're using, because the folks building the models to do that right. are meant. So interesting, right. same, similar sort of circumstance with bias. And you don't even, you, you, it's not You're, something you would. They're not doing intentionally. Like you, right, you don't just, intentionally yeah. set out to put bias into your model. Right. But if you have a team of all men that are creating models, that's going to create a bias. Yeah. If they're in one geographical location versus another and you have a, got a global company, that's going to create a bias. Yeah. So helping customers manage that and see that, I think, is really important part of progressing AI. Okay. Okay. So talk a little bit about being a female in tech. <laughs> as much as I want to talk data all day, I, of course, love the behavioral side. And Sure. So it's funny. Somebody asked me the other, a couple of weeks ago in an interview, you know, what's it like when you're the only woman in the room? And I, my response was... Which is crazy was, that that's still the case. I know. I, I think my response was, I don't think I notice anymore. Um, which is kind of interesting. So I don't either. That's interesting. <laughs> and I actually feel like that serves me better mm -hmm. to not dwell on it or analyze it or think yeah. about it. I just sort of come in who I am and not think about it. Cause I feel like when I'm thinking about it, then other people know I'm thinking right. about it and then, Oh my God, you know, right. So I try not to think about it. But there are times when something happens and you're and like, it's glaringly obvious. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I was at a conference not too long ago and uh, it was sort of, there was a round table that was happening. I was the only woman in the room. Of course I didn't notice, but it was a, it, it was a breakout round table. And one of the conference people came over and said, and it was supposed to be a breakout of executives, said, oh, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm sorry, but the, we like to keep all the executives at the table. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I was like, are you kidding me? I want um, a name. I right? want to know who this was. <laughs> it was mind blowing to me. And I thought, did he do that just because I was the only woman in the room? Like what made him, you know, choose me? Um, and then of course he was really embarrassed when he found out I was an executive, but it, it just that those kind of things where I wouldn't have noticed until he came over and did that. I was like, really, you're going to put me in a corner. I'm, I didn't come here to sit in a corner. Yeah. Nobody puts baby in a corner. <laughs> That's yeah, okay. No, I, I mean, I think he should have known better at this point, but <laughs> I think he seriously regretted it after the side eye glance I gave yeah, him. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Holy smokes. So just in general though, I mean, IBM is probably the top company to work for as far as tech. Mm -hmm. And so what has it been like, especially because you've moved up in the ranks, obviously there, mm -hmm. and you've held leadership roles. And right. so say a little bit more about that and, and the representation of women at IBM. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think it's it's a it really is ingrained in the culture and it goes back decades and decades of IBM really being very extremely inclusive with women. I mean, we have a be equal day that we celebrate okay. um, women in the workforce, but you know, that's all very superficial. I think it, yeah. it, it's got to show up in the culture. I mean, my executive team have goals, <laughs> like okay. goals in their checkpoints that, that are around making sure that it's not just women, but it's, it's inclusive underrepresented, across, yeah. underrepresented people. Uh, but women are a part of that. Um, and it's part of their performance management system. Right. And, you know, my boss started a whole, um, a program called grow that really focused on helping progress women in technology. Um, I, I have been working with various groups to make sure, you know, whether it's the Chasing Grace documentary that you and I have talked about before, yeah. I think that women need inspiration to not just come into tech, but stay into tech. Somewhere along the way, we lose them. And I think it's, you know, we, you, when you look at some of the data, it seems like it's around middle school where 
girls are talking about being scientists and getting into STEM yeah. and getting into tech, and then they get into high school and something happens. So I think we really have to focus on getting those girls in, in high school and, and pulling them through and keeping the women that we have in tech because there's less coming in. IBM's culture has been really good about that. I mean, when I think back to, I remember when I became a single mom and the first thought I had was, that's it, my career's over. No one's going to oh, promote gosh. a single mom. Uh, I have all sorts of limitations. And, you know, that wasn't the case. They didn't see those limitations. I, you know, I was promoted into the executive ranks. And so that, I think, is just a, a positive indication of how that culture is super supportive of women. I don't think that would have been the case in every tech company. And I, I hear horror stories yeah. and read horror stories all the time. I don't experience that. Um, so I think I'm lucky. So maybe that's why I don't notice being the only woman in the room anymore because it just doesn't matter in our yeah, culture. Yeah, yeah. And I'm going to be honest and admit my own bias. I thought maybe IBM was not that way. So kudos <laughs> to them. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. That's good. Well, and you have a female CEO. Absolutely. But it sounds like it, that was going on even before her tenure. I think it's, it, you know, it, before because I came into the company before she was the CEO. And it was amazing to me the difference in what I experienced and in being a, a consultant and going through those years. Certainly have Me Too stories that, that you know, go back yeah, years. Yeah. But once I came into IBM, it I just didn't experience that same. That culture just didn't tolerate it. It was very clear. Yeah, that's so. good. So tell me a little bit about your leadership style because you have moved up in the ranks and mm -hmm. you're leading teams today and have led teams. So talk a little bit about that. And what do you think has made you successful and <laughs> what has worked and not worked? Because I know I've certainly tried and failed, you know, on le my leadership style and approach. And, <laughs> and I'm always constantly Can't adjusting. Yeah, <laughs> always constantly adjusting it and, you know, trying to figure out the way, right way to inspire and motivate a team. I think what's worked for me is really understanding what motivates people, what their superpowers are. Part of like that. being a leader is to make sure you're you're optimizing the team and they're in the right place in the in the things that they do. And you can't optimize a team if you don't understand their talents. Sure. And I think as a leader, it's my responsibility to make sure someone's in the right place, in the right job, and move them if they're not. So I always take the time to understand the talents of the team, understand the work, and then create an organization structure that optimizes that. And even when I've picked up teams, you know, I've gotten people that somebody said, oh, this person's a, a real troublemaker and yeah. lazy. And I think it was just... I tend to get those people too. <laughs> <laughs> well, the funny thing was, is they, that wasn't my experience with right, these people. Right. They, it was that they just needed some inspiration. They needed somebody they to believe in, the in right them. Roles. They weren't in the yeah. right role. They didn't have... They didn't get the feedback and the appreciation. So I think that when you create that environment where people know you recognize what they're good at and you optimize that and you create that trust, trust is so important. So important. And when you when you have that trust across the team, the magic happens. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. And if you don't have that trusted environment, if people don't feel safe to come up with an idea, to try an idea, and even more importantly, to fail with that idea and learn from it, then you're not going to create a high-performing team. High-performing team shouldn't be a stressful, fear, fearful situation. Oh my gosh, totally agree. Yeah, it should be a safe, and ruling with an iron fist. Exactly. And yeah, exactly. I it was funny. My um, uh, I always had this inspiration when I was starting to work on growth strategies of Jägermeister's story of the Jäger bomb. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, it was one of my growth inspirations because here is a product, you know, similar to the challenges I had. It was an older product. It wasn't growing as fast. 
um, at the in the beginning of the case study, when they were looking at growth for Jaeger, they were selling in the UK about 70,000 bottles a year. And Which doesn't seem like that much. Is that It's not higher? that much, okay, right? Yeah. So it's, and they didn't really want to change the product. It was very complex. It took a, yeah. like a year. There was lots of ingredients. I feel like it was popular when I was dr- uh, drinking a lot. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure I have a lot yeah. of hangovers yeah. that I could attribute to that. Um, so they didn't want to change the product, but they wanted to get growth. And so they came up with this concept, like if we change the consumption model, can we get growth from it? And they came up with the idea of the Jaeger bomb. They kind of built a culture around it. And they went in the year after they created the Jaeger bomb, they went from 70,000 to 700,000. And then I think it went to something like, I can't remember the exact number, like 6.3 million and it accounted for 40% of the shots in the UK pot. And that's when you drop it into a beer, is that? It's like a Red Bull. Oh gosh. Oh, okay. And Jaeger. <laughs> yeah, not but I could see because it's more of an experience. Right. So yeah. they, they really focused on who was their target audience and how do we create growth? You know, here we're going to take this old complex product that yeah. probably none of these kids have heard of. Right. But we're going to take something they have, which is Red Bull. Yeah. <laughs> we're going to yeah, yeah. incorporate Smart. it into I mean, it's this, genius. Yeah. Right. And we're, and, and then play off the nostalgia. Boom. Yeah. Yeah. So, so my joke with my team, cause that was always one of my big inspirations was find the Jaeger bomb. Yeah. Go I find love, the Jaeger bomb. I might steal that. Yeah. Made, right? <laughs> oh, did you? Nice. Yeah, absolutely. And so that's how I, one of the things I would use to inspire people was, you know, look, here's an example of a product that was 80 years old. They didn't change the product. They yeah. just focused on the, the experience change and they were able to get growth. That's um, cool. So I would tell when I was working in innovation to look mm-hmm. for the shark with the laser because I wanted the craziest idea go. out there. We actually found sharks with laser beams on their heads too. So. <laughs> <laughs> but no, that's really cool. So, I love that story. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think I start every uh, all hands call with some sort of story. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, this week was, you know, since it was Christmas and we had our last call of the year, talked about how Amazon now, I think the, the data I saw in the story was that they now have the attention of 50% of the buyers in the United wow. States. 50%. Yeah. That's crazy. That's crazy. It's like two thirds of all the online buying. So, and all of that really was is because they focused on making it such a frictionless experience yeah. that they focus on it's the customer. The yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, in my management class, I play a video of Jeff Bezos from, I don't know how many years ago, mm-hmm. but he's saying just focus on the customer. Yeah. Relentless focus on the customer. That's really the secret to growth. And so I like, so I always use those stories to get him thinking about, you know, here was a, a company that at one point, not too long ago, sold books online. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And now they're your go-to for like, Everything. 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 Every, groceries. Yeah. Every. And I just finished up my Christmas shopping today. Oh, on I am not. Um, and, and they're they're looking for what's the next thing, right? Yeah, so now that yeah. Target and Walmart have said, "Oh, we can do that too." Now what they're doing is they're shifting more towards um, enabling the buy versus buy with voice experience. Yeah. With Alexa, and I mean it's it, it's really smart. I mean, focus on that experience. That is. That is everything. I feel like we've come full circle because we were talking about property and brick and mortar. And now <laughs> yeah. that's been surpassed by Amazon. Oh, they're now starting to have brick and mortar. Right. So it's just interesting. So it how is. do you stay on top of it all? Oh my gosh. <laughs> especially like the data side. And it's just such a rapidly moving, especially being at the leadership level, because mm-hmm. you're no longer that subject matter expert and you right. kind of have to have the view atop. So how do you stay on top of it? <laughs> uh, I am that nerd that is while I'm on the treadmill is watching the You're like machine a cool learning. Nerd, You're a cool nerd. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Uh, um, so yeah, I, 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 I try to optimize my t- time as much as possible yeah. to learn while I'm 
exercising. I'm listening to books while I'm biking. I'm watching uh, Andrew at Stanford talk about machine learning on my iPad while I'm on the treadmill. Okay. Um, I, I'm a, I am a Twitter and medium junkie. Okay. I, love, I love those two um, because those are curated to the things that I'm and specifically interested size. in. Yeah. yeah bite yeah. size that, that allows me to dive deeper into things. Who was the so, gentleman at Stanford you mentioned? Andrew N N Ang Andrew Ang okay, I think is how you okay. pronounce his name. Um, he's a he's a professor. I'm probably mispronouncing his name. Um, he was a, he's a professor. Who does a ton of great lectures on machine learning and AI. He's okay, really funny. Yeah. Um, so you, you that's can, a skill. Yeah, <laughs> make that funny. <laughs> I know. How do you make that yeah. entertaining? He is really. He's got like a dry sense cluster of humor, analysis. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> but he's, he's really great, for, especially for somebody who is just trying to dive into the whole area of machine learning and AI. I think he lays it out really nicely. Yeah. And I don't know how deep you go into algorithms and things like that. But one thing I learned while studying big data at DePaul was that these algorithms have been around for years and years yeah. and they're just being built upon. And, yeah. you know, you kind of think like, oh, somebody's in a room developing. No, they're actually using algorithms that were developed years ago. Absolutely. Decades ago. We, we just moved our office and um, so in, as a part of packing, we were finding stuff because one of the products in the in the Chicago office is SPSS statistics. Okay. We I, love finding, SPSS. I love SPSS. I'm an SPSS person. <laughs> <laughs> we were finding manuals and things from the late 60s, early 70s. It, I did actually didn't know it was around that long. Yeah. It's, uh, it turned 51 this year, 52. Okay. It's been around that long. On my desk, I have the 1968 typed manual from SPSS that. statistics. I, <laughs> I would totally frame that. That's going to be worth something. It is. Someday. It's in a glass. Yeah. It's like in this place of honor in my office. But um, yeah, the talk, so you're right. It's, it's this, the same algorithms, the same yeah. models that have progressed over the years. Not much of that has changed. One of the one of the statisticians was telling me that one of the articles he wrote from, he said, almost 20 years ago, is still getting reads. And he said, I just hit 2,000 reads on it. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> so it just goes to show. It's exactly right. The, those those algorithms haven't changed much. Yeah, and I don't know if this is urban legend or not, but apparently Tableau was built off of an academic paper that was 20 years old. <laughs> I would, I, I, would should, totally I wish I found that. that. Yeah, yeah. I would yeah. totally believe that. I mean, and, you know, researchers and academics, they put it out because they want to better the, right. the industry. And, you know, they're not necessarily looking to make tons of money on it. And right. so I could see it sitting on a shelf. Yeah, I think, that, and the interesting thing about that company was, I think they they nailed the consumability piece. Oh yeah, big yeah. time, right? Um, they ended up redefining the BI market. Yeah, absolutely. Right? <laughs> Which, as to your point, was around, but absolutely. it wasn't necessarily the best experience or more people's fingertips. Right. I guess, yeah. Well, I think you know because we have Cognos, which is a great product. Um, what Tableau did was really push out the whole goal of BI everywhere. So it was so much more consumable and yeah. accessible. And that actually caused the market to shift and almost be um, more commercialized, if you will. Whereas Cognos was really, uh, a, it's a great product. It's got so much capabilities. Now it's, it's, it's evolved over time, right? It's, it's got great visualizations. It's so much easier to use. But at the time it was built for that power user. Yeah. And Tableau was not. Right, <laughs> so, right. Yeah. It was kind of an interesting That's battle why I over use that it, time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that just goes to show how important that consumability and ex accessibility is. Yeah, absolutely. And people will trade off functionality for that. And sorry for bringing up competitors if I did That's that. That's all right. <laughs> I didn't even think about it. That's all right. <laughs> um, so growth hacking. I've heard you talk about this a little bit. You were on stage talking about it. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit more about it? Sure. And what it, first, what it is. 
<laughs> so growth hacking really is is a combination of marketing and product. Um, it is a it is really a, a culture of experimentation to get growth. So um, you know, I have growth hackers on my team that spend their days and nights just running tons of experiments, and and they're hunting for little pieces of growth. So it's never a silver bullet. It it could be that you know, now that we've instrumented a product, we have a much better view of where customers are are struggling and we can focus a growth experiment just on that piece. Okay. So it's really being much more data-driven than ever before. And I think it, it really goes back several years. Um, a guy named Sean Ellis and Patrick Vlaskovitz were sitting at a bar having a drink and discussing a job offer that one of them had gotten, and it was for a VP of marketing. And he, these guys, just like me, identified with this between this hybrid of product and, and marketing, right? Because to me, they're so intertwined. It's so intertwined, yeah. And he's like, I don't know. I don't think this is a. I don't want to be a VP of marketing. I wanna. I want to be a person who just really focuses on taking a product and exponentially growing it. And you, you know, you, you get a lot of the traditional stories of growth hacking, like they go back from Airbnb hacking into Craigslist. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, um, those, and seeing the comments and right. what people were looking or, for. Or actually reroute. I think they ended up rerouting to their own oh, website. Okay, is what they did. So okay. They hacked into an API, and when somebody hit a Craigslist ad, it rerouted to Airbnb. That is a true hack. Uh, growth hacking is like as an illegal hack or unethical <laughs> hack, or <laughs> I think it was a opportunistic. Okay, okay, okay. <laughs> they, I think they shut it down after that. That's really not what growth hacking is. Growth hacking is really a, a series of experimentation and things that help you recognize growth over a period of time. And it's really broken down by all the aspects of the journey, whether it's, you know, how easy is it as your product to discover and learn and try um, and how easy is it to acquire? How easy is it to use? Right. There's growth opportunities across all that way. And the, and the whole reason why I even found this was I was launching the first SaaS product and you know, coming from a, a traditional software company, I knew how to launch a product in that sure. way, you know, where you get it ready, you do all your launch work, you have an event, you train the salespeople, and then you kind of go on to the next thing. Sure. Um, and you, you really don't look back at that whole launch activity. And, and in the, in the SaaS and the digital world, that changes everything, right? You know, you, you think about how many people you got to get into the funnel digitally to try your yeah. experience. It's a whole new ball game. Like your marketing budget can't support that. So I, you know, started thinking like, how do companies do this? And I would get the same stories like Facebook and Airbnb, but it, it had, I started diving into the people who were talking about growth and really what it was, was how do you break down that customer journey and find opportunities to experiment across it that gives you all of this little incremental growth. And I look at like the, what the work that our team does is that there's no one thing that causes growth. There's like 50. Yeah. Right? Um, and it's, I think everyone's going for the big one. Right. And there's the no little, such thing. Yeah, right. it's, it's all these little opportunities of, well, you know, this person dropped off of, of provisioning the software because they had a problem. Maybe we have an issue or, um, looking at the the transcripts of the chatbots and seeing a pattern of what people are question what questions they have or the challenges they have and driving content experience changes into that. Sure. So there's just so many opportunities. You have to be almost methodical about it. Um, but that's really what growth hacking is. It, it I is love that a, a data driven experimentation culture that is 
allowing you to grow the 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 product and it, it it's also built on a concept called product market fit which means that you not only have a product that is a viable product in the marketplace so there's a market for it but there is a distinct differentiation for your product and you know exactly who you're selling it to yeah and a lot of traditional product teams look at i have a product here's what it does here's the competitors and here's the market size that's not exactly product market fit. Product right. market fit is truly knowing who you're selling to. I think and the, what problem you're solving. Exactly. Yeah. The, I think the best example that I always give that people get product market fit is, is do you remember when the iPhone was introduced and he walked out on stage and he said, you have uh, a phone and a music device, a phone and a music device. So the opportunity in the market was that this segment of users they were going after for the iPhone had two devices they were walking around with. Yes, And wouldn't it be nice if that, if that was one thing, right? And the differentiation was that they designed this one thing in such a beautiful design. It was so differentiated. It was so different that it took the market. So they knew who, they knew the opportunity. They knew their user, right? They created something that was so different and then boom, right? We all know where it went from there. <laughs> and they make it look so easy and yeah, it's so right. hard to replicate. But they didn't, he didn't walk on stage and say, I'm going to introduce a new phone. Right. That wasn't the product market fit they were going for. Is it for. a thousand songs in your pocket? Is that Yeah, is that? <laughs> yep, exactly. So I love the innovation part of it and the research. And does IBM, and to the extent that you can talk about it, do a lot of ethnography and voice of customer and go out and observe? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's multiple ways. So we have, obviously, we, we use NPS quite a bit. Sure. Um, and we have that all interconnected with our Slack so people know when there is feedback. They can they are very responsive. We're constantly monitoring NPS. All the way up to our chairman. She's very wow. okay. focused on NPS. Um, <laughs> we also do a bunch of user research. So part of the product team's work is to work with uh, design. And there's two parts of our design team. One is the product design, like the whole UX, right? Um, the other is just user research, you know, have we nailed product market fit? What is the experience? Where are those opportunities? And that actually fuels a lot of the changes that we drive back into the experience. Okay. So I think it's a combination of all of those things that, but it's, but it's constant. You know, we always have a user research. We always have NPS on. Sure. Um, we're, we have ways to engage with the client in product through the community that just gives us so much more feedback. And I compare like 20 years ago, maybe even 10 years ago, the way we did it was we had customer councils. And so you get a small number yeah, of people yeah. that came in and they would drive the product. Um, it's so different now because you get real-time Instant, feedback. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Say a little amazing. bit more about NPS because not everybody's familiar with that necessarily. So NPS is a way to measure, that's net promoter score, um, how your clients feel about the, the experience of your product. Um, and so the product is instrumented so it can capture that. So you Probably most people have used NPS. If you, you know, sometimes they get at the end of a survey a happy face or a sad face, or it's asked how likely you score, are you to how recommend are you to recommend it? What was your experience? Um, that gives us real data about how the clients feel about it. I think the other thing is reviews. Reviews never used to be a thing in no. software. Yeah, you know. And oh, in software, yeah. That's I was thinking doctor's office. I would never no, go to a doctor's like, office. But now without. think about when you buy something, right? Yeah. You look at the Amazon reviews. You look at. You always look at the reviews. Yeah. So now it's become a thing in software. So uh, there's companies like G2 Crowd that's capturing a lot of reviews on software, and it's, it's it's getting traction. That also gives us a lot of great feedback as well. And just that community piece too, like yeah. you said, because oh, it's very tight and. Absolutely. Our ability to integrate that community experience in 
is really, really important because people want to know what are, what are other people doing with it? Who, who are my cohorts that are using this product? And they want to be able to connect with them even probably more so than us. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm going to switch gears just a little bit. Sure. Although again, I could talk data all day, <laughs> <laughs> but you and I know each other through an organization called Women Unlimited, which yes. is an executive development year long program to help women advance in their careers. And so you've been very passionate about supporting women. Even your Twitter says that you are mm -hmm. a big supporter of women in STEM. So say a little bit more about that and why it's so important to you. Oh my gosh. I, I think that I saw an article one time about the, the data of more women leaving than coming in. And yeah. I think a lot of it stems from the challenges of being a woman in tech, sure. you know, not necessarily where I'm at, but a lot more in Silicon Valley. And, and like the bro culture and some of exactly. these horror stories that you, and again, not all of the companies have this, but right. companies like Uber where oh my it gosh. was from the top down. Exactly. Yeah. It, it, it's, it's seeded into the culture. And I, I just kind of felt this need to, to do something. Sure. Um, so I think the first, one of the first things I did was there was a, a company that was just being formed by um, a woman who was working at Google called Hire Tech Ladies. Um, <laughs> and so I was a, became a founding member of that and, and contributed to the, to the growth of that because I really felt like this was a great organization that just helped connect women up to jobs in tech, became pretty active in, in that community. Um, then I got introduced to uh, a documentary that was being done called Chasing Grace that was really about telling stories and sharing those stories to help inspire women to not just come into tech, but stay in tech. Sure. And I think... There are a lot of women out there that need that inspiration. And I got to tell you, when the trailer was released of the work that I did with them, there were so many people that reached out to me and said, oh, you've inspired me. And you don't think that some of your words do that, right? right. right? Yeah. But there are women out there that need role models of other women who are in tech, have families, have made it through to the other side. And then they, that they can look to and say, hey, I, if she could do it, I could do it too. Absolutely, yeah. Right? And, and that's I, why it's important to have women in the leadership ranks so that there are those absolutely. role models. And I just feel it's extremely important to be that role model yeah. and to, to bring that inspiration to women because it's just so needed. And, and even, you know, I remember even at IBM trying to find a mentor who was a woman who looked like me, you yeah. know, who at the time I was a single mom, not a lot oh gosh, there, yeah, right? yeah. Who got made it into the executive ranks? And I did have an IBM fellow mentor at the time. She's since retired from the company, but she was an amazing mentor who, like me, was a single mom, and she was such a source of inspiration for me. Yeah, that I felt like I I need to pay this forward. Yeah, I love that. Well, good. Well, thank you for that. And so we've even talked about kindness and being a servant leader and. Mm -hmm. I think you even had a picture where you post, oh, you've got it on. Okay, <laughs> she's do, got it on. I, I the kindness, it, on. Be ki it says be kind, be kind on her yeah. bracelet. And so I think the myth is that if you're women or female in leadership role, you're somehow this bitch on wheels. Or even like <laughs> I was a p female police officer, I yep. think that's the you know stereotype is that you're going to be just awful, an awful human being and have to treat everybody right. terribly. And so say a little bit more about the, the being <laughs> kind and servant leadership. So I, I think it's so important. And I think the amazing thing I feel like is my job, at least, has allowed me to win arguments with data. Yeah, so, yeah that's true. Yeah. I don't, it's sort I don't of irrefutable. Actually, at that right, point, I don't yeah. know how to get that as contentious, but um, I think that at the end of the day, kindness always wins. I, I, I've said that to my kids their whole lives. Sure. You know, I have 
be kind, have courage. In fact, I probably said it too much because my yeah. daughter has it tattooed across her shoulder now. Oh boy. Yeah. <laughs> You're um, like, thank you, but literally. <laughs> yeah. But I think it's so important because you build that culture that that is the foundation for building that trusted culture yeah. with your team is I don't, I'm not going to rule by fear. I mean that, you know, nobody we, wants to work in an environment like nobody that. Nobody wants yeah. that. Exactly. Now, of course, well, I have the bee that's inside and if I have to take it out, right, right. I will. <laughs> of course. Um, yeah, of course. But I don't feel the need to take it out that often. And right. I think because of the, you know, I, I always feel like my job is to enable my team. How do I help them be successful? How do I keep things out of their way? So um, I say the exact same thing to my team. And sometimes mm-hmm. when I first take over a new team or start with a new team, they look at me like I'm nuts when I say that. Like, <laughs> then they really don't trust me. You know, it takes a little yep. period of time for them to believe that that is my role is right. to get them where they want to be and enable their, you know, what they're trying to do in right. their careers. I so. think I've done too good of a job because now I meet with my management team and I usually end up walking away with more to-dos than they come with lists for me. <laughs> for so. you, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I've evidently done a good job of that. But I, I have seen people transform when they know someone believes in them, yeah. when they know that you're there to support them and you truly understand what their what their strengths are and you work with them on the weaknesses and you do that with a, a level of kindness so that that feedback is very well received. Right. And I think that takes time to perfect. But I've had several people over the years who you know, might have been labeled as difficult. Sure. And I always saw it as this great challenge, you know, that there is a way to tell people what they're really good at and where they can be even better that is more inspiring than, hey, you know, you really suck at this and you got to you got to do better or else. But yeah. there is ways to inspire people to transform on the things they're weak on. And it and it's rooted in kindness and trust. Yeah, I love that. So when we went through Women Unlimited, I had just gone from an individual contributor to leading a team, leading the team that I was on. So talk about, you know, really kind of a weird role. But the one Mm -hmm. thing that I learned from the Women Unlimited program is like delegation and allowing Mm -hmm. people to have autonomy. And because they don't do it the way that you would do it, doesn't mean it's done wrong. And, you know, it was hard for me to give up that control because I was a subject matter expert in one thing. And then when you're leading a team, it's totally different. But being able to do that and empower people is just amazing. And be there for them when they fail. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And try and help them learn from the experience. And that, you know, that's the hard part is, you know, when you've you know, I've had a couple of managers that were brand new with me this year and their things weren't always perfect. And but as long as you can make everything a learning experience so they grow from it. Yeah. A lot of times, you know, I would use stories of my own, like, oh, when I was a new manager, this is what happened to me or it, so that they can relate that they're not stumbling through and they're the only ones that ever made that mistake. Yeah, yeah. Know? I think the failure is huge, especially in an innovative company like yeah. IBM. Absolutely. Yeah, that you have to have that ability and, and then move on fast and ab- fail absolutely. and fail fast. And I think a lot of people don't really understand what fail fast means. Right. They're like, really? You're <laughs> they're like, why would faster? you want to do that? Yeah. <laughs> but really, I think, and we maybe it's the term that's, that's poor. It's more like learn fast from your failures. Right. You're winning than, or you're learning. It's a data point. Right. Yeah. Exactly. And you, in a lot of cases, in the experiments that we fail on, we learn more than the ones that were a success. Yeah. Which is kind of interesting. Super interesting. I just convinced my brothers to go into a home flipping business with me. <laughs> and I'm like, I don't That's even awesome. care if it fails. I don't even care. I'm like, it's fine. At least we tried and I won't right. have that thought going, you know, back and forth in my head. And we did it. We tried. Right. And if you're if you're going in with a minimum viable product, if you will, and you're and you're iterating on top of that and you're testing constantly whether you have product market fit with that minimum viable yeah. product, 
you're going to have a ton of failures. I mean, I love the story of Instagram when it was first launched. It was called Bourbon. Okay. I don't know the story. And bourbon. Bourbon as in the liquor bourbon? Yeah, because okay. I guess the guys were big bourbon okay, drinkers. Okay. But the product wasn't going anywhere. Sure. And they were really perplexed by it. And meanwhile, they're just packing in features and functions of the product. Yeah. It's still not growing. And I think a lot of us who've been in product for years have that mindset of if I add more features and function, that's what's going to help right, grow. Right, 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 right. And it's actually, you know... Um, products like Tableau taught us the opposite, right? Right. It's the consumability piece that, that actually probably gets it to grow faster. But they, so they, they stopped what they were doing. I think they instrumented the product. They took a look at like, what are people doing in that product? Like if, out of these 25 things that we have enabled, what are they doing? And they found that they were like doing three right. and nothing else. <laughs> yeah. So they were all stunned. So they, they basically just narrowed the product down and made those three things that people were doing, I don't know if it was three or four, but a really good experience. They relaunched the product as Instagram. And I think shortly thereafter, the huh. sold to Facebook. Yeah. I so, mean, it is pretty simple if you think about it, the concept. It is. Yeah. It, but it's really truly understanding what's going on, you know, and, and I think the interesting thing is if they had just launched those three things, they would have seen they would have seen it, right? But they were, they just kept piling on top of right, it right. without understanding what the experience was like. I talk about this actually in my innovation class where it's the alarm clock with the 70 different things that it does. And actually right. people really only want the alarm clock. Right, <laughs> right, yeah. exactly. But you have to have that insight. I mean, we've been a big, I'm a huge proponent of building in intelligence into the product so that you actually get that vision. Sure. Um, and we've spent the last two years doing a lot of that, it's, it's really changed the way we build products. It's changed the way we grow products. It's changed the experience for the products. It makes a world of difference. And I almost think going back to the simplicity piece, I think simplicity is actually more difficult to do, to it's do it very, well. Yeah. Yes. I think Apple's obviously the best example of that, but yep. it's difficult to do it well. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because again, our tendency is, is the more we pack into it, the better it will be. Right. But again, the market shows that the products that have grown the fastest have been very simple. Yeah, right? and solving that one problem Absolutely. or yeah, and doing it very well. Interesting. Okay. So let's talk a little bit about Simon Sinek, because I think actually when you met him, oh, yeah. you met you actually got to meet him, right? Did. And amazing. that's when I started reading him. And he wasn't really as popular as he is today. That was a few years ago, I think. Mm -hmm. And when I saw you, I'm like, oh, I'll have to check out this Mr. Simon Sinek. <laughs> <laughs> and so I did. And I was like, oh my God, amazed. I know. Yeah. I love his, he, what, he did a TED Talk. I think I've watched it like a the, thousand The Start times. With Why? Start With Why. I love it. I watch it all the time. Yes. I, I don't think I do a presentation without watching right. that. Right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, just, yeah. It's, it makes, and talk about a simple idea, right? Right. Yes. Um, but I love his leadership philosophy. I and he also is a big proponent of leading with kindness yes. and creating that culture. Uh, I have learned so much from his books. Like I think he's amazing. So insightful. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I mean, and that is that he he does a lot of work with a lot of large companies and changing the cultures of companies. I mean, it's really what it should be. Yeah. Yeah. The what is IBM's things. going back to IBM? What is their tagline or mission statements or? Well, for, for us, you know, it, we're in the data and AI business. Okay. We're, we're trying to enable clients to in, in, the, in the area of AI. I mean, this is a challenge for a lot of yeah. companies. Everybody wants to do it. Nobody knows how to get there. Um, IBM as a whole, I think it's more on the, uh, at the corporate level, I should know that, right? It's uh, more on the smart for good and okay. leveraging smart. So it kind of goes back to the 
campaign we had years ago. Um, yeah. And do they still do the Think Fridays and or set time aside to? We try. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> we try. But yes, we have the the Think Fridays, the the one thing that's been great is lots of education. We even have book clubs online okay. via Slack. So we talk about different So you guys books use Slack. I, I've actually recently been turned on to Slack. I love it. I think we might be the biggest Slack user. Okay. Yeah. But you still have email. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yes, unfortunately, we At do. first, Slack, I, it took me a little bit, but then once I got, I, I, now I, yeah, I'm addicted to it. I don't know what we do without it. Yeah. You know, like, a, the, if you actually want a great uh, entertainment is whenever Slack is down, which isn't that often, go check Twitter out because <laughs> the memes when Slack is down are the funniest thing Don't people ever. just go home then? <laughs> <laughs> like that, uh, that is like makes my day uh, when it's down because it's the funniest memes I've ever seen. That's hilarious. Because it just, it's, it's amazing how... Um, ingrained that's become the culture. And I actually got to meet one of the original uh, growth leaders for Slack okay. um, at a, at the Growth Hackers Conference. And, you know, the early days, Slack wasn't actually that user-friendly either. And I remember she had one slide that that she put up that she was talking about how her favorite horror movie was watching people use her product. Oh, gosh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like me listening back to this podcast. <laughs> but again, you nail that experience. Yeah, it's not yeah. a complicated product. Right. But it's a simple idea. And let the really users works. guide it too, though. Let them yeah, get absolutely. in there and work with it and kind of guide where it goes. And that they definitely did that, right? People were like, I don't know. How to, I, I remember in the early days, it was hard to remember how to log in. <laughs> it was like one of those simple things that the, yeah. people gave them lots of feedback. Like, I don't remember how to log in. The login process was tough. Yeah. Yeah. So. Simple things though. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned being a single mom at some point. So mm -hmm. obviously you have a family. I do. And I always get the question when I'm speaking places or on a panel about work-life balance, which I have no answers <laughs> for, but I mean, how do you balance it all? Cause obviously your job's very demanding mm -hmm. and you want to spend time with your family. I think it, it really comes down to setting boundaries that so people know what's important to you. Sure. I think that a lot of women have a fear that those boundaries won't be respected. Yeah. I remember one time I was uh, I was camping with the kids and I get this text message from our SVP. He's like, and he says, I need you to be in New York tomorrow at 1030. Oh and I'm gosh. thinking, I'm yeah. in Wisconsin in a tent. Yeah. I don't have anybody to watch my kids. I went into this full out panic mentally. Then I took a deep breath and I thought, all right, I'm going to tell him what I can do. Sure. Instead of what I can't do. Texted him back and said, I can be there Monday morning. Okay. <laughs> I'll catch a flight that gets me in at this time. And the response back was just, okay. Yeah. Right. <laughs> you know? and I'm thinking, wait, I just as you're seeing lost the three dots like ten years <laughs> off of my life for that. You know? Right. But, but that I think is a good illustration of we panic thinking that we have to be all things to all people right. at all times. But yeah. their expectation it probably isn't that. Right. And so if, <laughs> if we say what we can do instead of focusing on what we can't do, it usually turns out okay. Yeah. And as women, the like I said, the first thing I did was think about all the things I couldn't do. I couldn't be there by 1030. I couldn't find a babysitter. Right. I couldn't make it back. Um, instead of just saying, this is what I can do. Yeah. That work? Yeah. yeah. All right. Okay. <laughs> wow. Look how easy that was. And so that's really how I've kind of built my life. I've also, and I tell this woman all the time, don't have any regrets. When there's the Halloween parade, 
when there's the gingerbread building day, yeah. when there's the choir concert or that big game, be there. Yes. Prioritize it. And then, because now my kids are are both in college, I can look back and say, I didn't miss a thing. I have no That's regrets. That's pretty remarkable, given the role that you have and yeah. the work that you do. Yeah. But it's because everybody knew that was my priority, right? Those kids were my priority. I knew that they didn't, they only had me. And so if I, if they felt for one second, I wasn't going to be there for them, that's devastating for a kid. Yeah. So I had to make that my priority and I worked, you know, everybody worked around that. It wasn't a limitation. It was, that's my priority. And so again, I think as women, we see that obligation, making that a priority as a limitation. It's not, it's a priority. Yeah. You know, there are men that prioritize golf. <laughs> this is true. Right. Yes. <laughs> and they don't, you know, so it's, it's about setting those priorities or, uh, and letting people know what they are. And if they don't respect them, you're in the wrong place. Yeah. And I like what you said about having the no regrets, because I think if you mm -hmm. got to this point and had not gone to those events, the regret wouldn't have been about your career. Exactly. It, it would have absolutely been about not being there for your absolutely. kids. Yeah. I think it's been hard you you have to define what success is for you. Some people say, you know, if I am, I am at this level and I'm making this amount of money by this age, this is success. And to me, it's always been, it's got to be more holistic than that, right? You know, yeah. If I can get to a certain level, make a ton of money, but then my kids feel like they can't depend on me, that's not success, right? right? So you have to define what success is for you and then stick to that. That's that's what your goal is. It's And not every woman is going to feel that way, right? There right. are plenty of women who will be like, that is success to me and they can depend on my husband. <laughs> <laughs> my husband does the laundry very well. So. <laughs> that's right. And that's, that's okay. That's how we make up right? for it, we, yeah. And they shouldn't apologize for that either, right? right? Not every woman wants to be a full-time mob or not mom or not every woman wants to prioritize that. Not every man wants to prioritize right. that. It shouldn't matter. It's your priorities are your priorities. How you define success is how you define success. That's, Just don't have regrets. That's an interesting nuance because my husband is definitely he's very happy in his career and content. And I'm always like, what's next? What's next? What's the next mm -hmm. big ambitious thing I could do? And right. he doesn't have that. So it's a good balance. Right. Yeah. And to him, that's success. Yeah. Right? He's happy as could be. Yeah. Absolutely. Does the same routine, gets up at the same time, goes to the, I'm the exact opposite. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. So that's good. So last question. Mm -hmm. So you are very authentic. You use humor <laughs> a lot. Yep. You have a great sense of style and oh, like you're always, and I think that's what drew me to you. We weren't even in the same group in no. Women Unlimited, but we became friends and I think that's what drew me to you. And so talk a little bit about that and why that's important to you. And oh, you're probably wow. doing it and don't even realize <laughs> you're doing it because they're so amazing, but. Oh my gosh. You're going to make me blush. Um, I don't know. I, I just feel like being authentic is so important to so being important. a leader. Yeah. I mean, how can you trust somebody if you're always second guessing what they say or what they're feeling or what they really mean? And again, it goes back to that core concept of trust. I, if I'm not being authentic, people are never going to trust me. Yeah, that's and a good point. There's danger in being authentic, right? Because you're putting risk. yourself risk. out yeah. there. Yeah. It's not safe to be authentic all the time, but I think that it all balances out. Um, so sure, has a, have I been burned by being authentic. Right, right. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, but for the most part, I think that it's made me a much more inspirational leader. It's it's built the trust that I've needed to build with the team to get someplace. So I, I think it's so important. So important. And it's funny, it took me a long time to realize that. And I always felt like I had to mold myself or talk a certain way mm -hmm. or dress a certain way. And 
that maybe the trust wasn't there or maybe I wasn't landing on people the right way because of that. And then the second I became myself and didn't give, I gave zero fucks about that. (laughs) My success almost skyrocketed as a result. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and the people that aren't my people, that's fine. But it almost, there was a correlation between being myself and and the energy that I got back as a result. Right. And if you, if you try and change yourself to fit the situation- People then, like pick up on that. Right. Or, and eventually yeah. some, you're not going to end up fitting because how can you not be yourself for that? Right, 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 right. Yeah. I mean, I, it's like even the little things I think about like, oh, do I take my, my nose piercing out before Hell I talk no. to certain people? Yeah. Like, nope, this is who I am. This yeah. is a part of who I am. And if, if people are freaked out by that, it shouldn't be, but, but, you know, I think a lot of people obsess too much about showing up in a way that people want you to show up. People want you to show up as you. Right. Right. And, and that's they, your value. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, and if they, and if you're not well received, then again, it goes back to, you're not in the right place. That's not the right place. Yeah. Yeah. Well, awesome. I think that's a great way to end it. Thank you so much for your, you're I learned welcome. a ton and oh love spending gosh. time with you. So thank I you so much. I love spending time with you. Oh, thank you. That's the end of our show, Victors. Thank you so much for listening. If you felt any benefit from this show, please let us know, give it a subscribe and share with somebody else that you think might benefit. And don't forget to follow me at Dr. Karen Bartuch on Instagram. And you can check out IamDavidaJane.com for all of the services that I offer, such as coaching, workshops, and speaking. And that's D-A-V-I-D-A-J-A-N-E, IamDavidaJane.com. And remember, the bad guy is looking for a victim, not an opponent. Victorization is yours.